Thank you, Paul. Thanks for reading for us this morning. Good morning, everybody. Let me just uh, acknowledge my new accessory I decided to, to put on yesterday, so you don't all wonder what I happened. Uh, I did something that I shouldn't have done yesterday, which was apparently work in the kitchen at all. Um, <laughs> apparently chopping vegetables is too challenging for me. But the good news is I did lose some weight from it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's good to be with you this morning as we open up the book of Micah again. If you've been with us for the last uh, number of weeks, even months, we've been walking through this book, which is a sobering book. It's a sobering call to the people of Israel, saying, listen, your sin is a big deal. It's nothing to sweep under the rug. And it's been calling us. It's a a call to introspection, of self-examination, of seeing where these things are true of us. Because you see, this letter, or this, this scroll, was not written to you. It was written to the people of Israel 2,700 years ago. But it was written for you. Do you see the difference? It wasn't written to you, but it was very much written for you to show you things about the human nature, to show you things about who God is, and to show us both the seriousness of our sin And yet at the same time, you've seen over and over again through these different cycles that Micah has has brought to the nation of Israel, hope throughout the entire story as well. So to get us started this morning, I have a question. I think I'm allowed to ask this question. Maybe you shouldn't raise your hands. Um, How many of you have had a chance to fulfill your civic duty uh, by serving on a jury? You know what, just don't even raise your hands because I don't know if I'm allowed to ask that question. I think I can. I'm not asking you for the names, right? A couple of years ago, I got to serve on jury, which means I got to drive to lovely Norristown and park and walk into the, the courtroom and go hang out with a bunch of other people who really don't want to be there either. Um, and uh, we sat in that room hoping and praying that our name or our number didn't get called so I could just get my $3.72 or whatever the compensation is for your time uh, and, and head home. But my name got called and uh, it was quite an experience to serve on a jury for a couple of days, and uh, I don't know if you've ever had that privilege, tongue-in-cheek, if it wasn't a privilege to you, I'm sorry, <laughs> if you ever had that experience, the way that I experienced it, it, was, it, it felt heavy, it felt really serious. I don't go into a courtroom often, I've never been a part of something like this before. Thankfully, I've never been on trial, but this was a different experience. This wasn't exactly the place to crack jokes and giggle, right? Like this, that, there was this, a somberness and a seriousness to that space because someone's life is at stake. Someone's life is going to be altered by the, the verdict that comes out of that courtroom. It's a very serious moment. Now imagine that the person who was wronged in whatever case it was happens to be the one who is sitting at the bench and is also the jury and is also the one who gets to give the sentence. To our kind of American sensibilities, that's a conflict of interest. That's no good, right? They're they're biased. There's something against that. For us, that doesn't make sense, but that's exactly where we find ourselves in Micah 6. This is a sovereign ruler who is both 
the one who is enthroned, who is the judge of all peoples, and is the one who was wronged. This is a very serious and heavy chapter. And if you've been with us again through Micah, you know we've kind of come through a couple of these cycles of of serious confrontation for our sin. And then there's hope. And then we come back into sin. And that's where we are again in chapter 6. And as Pastor Jen last week told us, he kind of hinted at it a couple of times, this is a courtroom scene. This is Micah representing, relaying God who is the prosecuting attorney, the judge, and the one who dishes out the sentence. He is all of these things at once. But as we get into the details of the second half, last week we walked through the first half, as we get into the details of the second half, there's some things we got to just pause for a moment, step out of the courtroom, kind of into the history books, and remember a couple of key things that have taken place in Israel's history to get them to this point. Because there's a lot of assumption that takes place. Because there's a lot of references that if you were a part of the Israelite nation, you would, have, you would know these things. You would know the Old Testament so well, you would catch these references. But we don't. So let's just take a minute and remind ourselves of where we've been. How did Israel... How was Israel formed? Well, out of all the nations, out of all the individuals on earth, God selected one man, and his name was Abraham. And to Abraham, he says, I promise to bless you. I'm going to make your family huge. I'm going to give you my favor. I'm going to walk with you, bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. I'll give you my protection. And one day, the entire world will be blessed through you and through your family. And that blessing is passed on to the son, Isaac, to the next son, Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel. And Israel becomes a huge nation, but they're an enslaved nation in the, peop- in the land of Egypt. But God comes in, and he redeems them. He rescues them from slavery. He, he miraculously destroys any of their enemies so that nothing stands against them. And he brings them to the foot of a mountain, Mount Sinai. And he does a couple of important things at Mount Sinai. Number one, he reveals himself to the people. He does that explicitly for the very first time in all of Scripture. He tells you, Israel, this is what I'm like. And then he reveals it in the law, the beautiful, good, perfect law of God that reveals his character, that reveals his heart. And so now that Israel knows a little bit about who God is, he invites them into a covenant with him. Begins by revealing himself. Exodus 34, 5, 6, and 7. Actually, just 6 and 7. And he, the Lord, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming. This is God's self-revelation. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation. I feel like I'm constantly coming back to this verse as I read the rest of Scripture. And that's because the rest of the Bible comes back to this verse verse more than any other verse in the entire Bible. When we think about what's the most well-known or well-used verse, our minds go to John 3.16 or something like that. But for the biblical authors, this is their John 3.16. This is their most well-known referenced verse. It's how God shows you who he is. He is compassionate and gracious, and yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. 
And those two things in our minds seem contradictory, don't they? How can God be both the one who is merciful and compassionate and at the same time not allow sin to go unpunished, not allow the guilty to go unpunished? God just says, that's who I am, and my small little brain doesn't know what to do with that. So just tuck that away. Because then God goes on not only to reveal himself, but to give his law, which is also a further revelation of his heart and what he's like. And he says two things. He says, one, obedience to this law will result in blessing and life. Disobedience will result, result in curse exile and death. Two paths set in front of them. And actually what he does is he says in in Deuteronomy 27, right before God sends the people into the promised land, he says to them, when you get in there, there's going to be two important mountains. One is Mount Ebal and one is Mount Gerizim. And on those mountains, I want you to take a, a large rock and I want you to cover it with plaster. And on those two mountains, I want you to write the curses that will come to you if you disobey this law. Put that on Mount Ebal. This is a large mountain etched into this plastered rock. These are the curses. And on the opposing mountain, Mount Gerizim, was another large mountain plastered over with with the blessings written on it. So that as people would look, they would see there are two distinct paths to head down right now. There's the path of obedience, which on Gerizim is blessing and life. And then there's the path of the fool, the path of disobedience, which leads to curse and exile and death. These are the choices set before Israel. Today's passage walks us into the courtroom in which God says, let me give you my verdict as to which path you have chosen. Have you kept your part in the covenant, Israel. Have you been faithful to me? And if you've been with us for a little while, I think you know the answer. I don't think I'm spoiling anything here. But let's walk through this. Jen introduced last week the beginning part of this when the court is called to order. Chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up and plead my case before the mountains. These aren't just random mountains. This is, remember the covenant. These are the grounds by which I'm making my verdict. This is the law that I'm holding you against. You've entered into this covenant. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Verse 2, hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He's lodging a charge against Israel. In other words, the court is now in session. Let's talk. But before he does... He says, remember how I have been to you. Remember what I have done for you. How you've experienced my goodness, that you've experienced that I am gracious, that I am compassionate, Israel. Verse 8 tells us, what is it that the Lord requires? Is it just a couple of hours a week? Is Is it sacrifice and more stuff? Is it just, does God just want me to check a couple boxes? No. Verse 8, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. In other words, God's saying, I don't want just a little piece of your life. I want all of you. I want my people who love me, who want to be with me and want to be like me. 
And so what he calls us to is the very thing that God is himself. He says, be like me. I am merciful and compassionate, and I demand justice. See, those two things that he calls us to do are the very same things that he's just revealed about himself. He says in Exodus 34, 5, and 6, 5, 6, and 7, he says, I don't let the guilty go unpunished. Justice, making things right that were wrong. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, those who work don't eat, reap what you sow. All of that is what God says, hey, this is who I am, and it should be who you are as my people. And I'm a gracious and compassionate God. The ideas of justice, we've been talking about this for the last couple of months, are not just punishing the wrongdoers, but also making restitution for those who are weak and vulnerable and in need. It's both at the same time. To love mercy. This is, the, this is a really rich Hebrew word. It's the word hesed. If you want to say it right, I think you have to do a little phlegm in the beginning. Chesed. And in a book called A Loving Life, Paul Miller describes hesed this way. He says, sometimes hesed is translated steadfast love. It combines commitment with sacrifice. Hesed is one-way love, love with no exit strategy. And when you love with hesed love, you bind yourself to the object of your love, no matter what the response is. Your response to the other person is entirely independent of how that person has treated you. Hesed is a stubborn love. Now, again, we're coming, if you're, if you're tracking with me, there's a little bit of a dilemma that's showing up here. Because God's just saying, Israel, I'm not interested in just a couple of hours a week or a little bit of your life. I want the whole thing. And I think you know where this passage is going to go. You've heard it read. It doesn't turn out very positively. So we're going to see, we'll walk through that in a minute. But at the same time, God says, I am merciful and I am compassionate and I have loved you with hesed love, stubborn, faithful love, regardless of how you treat me. And God's revelation hundreds of years before is now coming to a point where it seems that we're at a little bit of an impasse. How are these two things going to coexist? Let's go back into the courtroom. We pick it up in verse 9. We're going to ask the question, how is Israel doing? The expectation is that they would do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before their God. And the question is, are they doing that? Chapter 6, verse 9. It's amazing about what God does. Jin pointed this out last week, and this happens again in these verses. God says, get ready. I'm going to bring my charge against you. But before I do that, let me give you a little window into my heart for you. Before I drop the guilty hammer, before I render my verdict, let me tell you why I'm giving you this case, why I'm bringing these charges against you. Verse 9, listen, the Lord is calling to the city, and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Let me translate that for us. Don't choose the way of the fool. Heed my call. Fear my name. Choose the path of wisdom. 
Don't be stupid. Let me remind you the different outcomes. What's at stake here is life and death. This is an invitation to repentance. To fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod. Listen to the one who is speaking to you. And the implication, the, the, uh, the what's the word? Implied, there it is. The implied invitation is repent. Here's how I know that. You know that your, the Bible, the way that we hold it, is not the way that the Old Testament Israelites experienced it. They didn't have it all in one book. They had it in a bunch of scrolls, right? variety of different scrolls. You would collect scrolls if you, I mean, very few people did. They were collected in a synagogue or in a temple. But there was one scroll that was 12 of them all together, and that's the 12 books of what we call the minor prophets, Hosea to Malachi. That was one scroll. And what's interesting is right before Micah is what book? It's Jonah. And in Jonah, what you find is God, through Jonah, brings a message to the Ninevites, the pagan nation. And this is the message he brings in chapter 3, verse 4. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That is a judgment sentence with an implied invitation to repent. Turn away. Listen to what the king of Nineveh says in chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. He makes a decree and says, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And it's exactly what God does. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented, he turned away and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened A couple verses later, a couple chapters later, that same verdict is brought to Mike, from Micah to the people of Israel. Things aren't going well. You're guilty. But implied in there is an invitation. So repent. Heed the one who bears the rod of judgment. Fear the name of the Lord. To fear the Lord is having a loving reverence for God that displays itself in obedience to what he says. See, we have this thing, we have this aversion to the word obedience, don't we? It feels weak. It feels like uh, if you've grown up in the church, it feels legalistic. Well, we don't want to try to obey too much. Don't want to be a legalist here. The problem is obedience is a beautiful word. Submission is a beautiful thing because the reality is, is you will obey and submit to someone or something. The problem is if it's not the good, loving God of the universe who created you and knows what it is, you're going to pick something that is going to be a terrible God. It will usually be yourself. You will exalt yourself in a place where you get to determine what is right and what is wrong. And newsflash, if you've not experienced this, you are a terrible God. You're a terrible God. This is the theme, though, of the book of Micah. God says, I don't want just a little bit. I want all of you. Submission to me. Fear me. Not be afraid, but fear. Reverential respect that leads to obedience. 
Because everything God has given to us in his commands is for your own good. He's the one who made you. Back into the courtroom. Chapter 6, verses 10, 11, 12, and then a little bit of 16 as well. Here are the formal charges that God brings against Israel. He says, am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, you wicked house, and the short ephah, which is a measurement of grain, which is accursed? Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales and a bag of false weights? You, your rich people are violent and your inhabitants are liars and their tongues speak deceitfully. If you skip down to verse 16, you have observed the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house, and you have followed their traditions. And what's interesting about what he's doing is God's not just randomly pulling things out. In the same way, he didn't just call random mountains. He's saying, look, I'm going back to the covenant that you made. Every one of these things he's just listed are direct quotes out of the Old Testament law. He's saying, look, I'm, I'm going to the evidence. Piece of evidence number one, you're selfish. You don't love your neighbor as you love yourself. Piece of evidence number two, you cheat one another. You don't practice justice. You put imbalanced weights so that it makes better life for you. If you're the seller, you balance it so that you get paid more. And if you're the buyer, you're trying to cheat each other out of stuff. You're not just with one another. You're not fair. You're not right. Piece of evidence number three, you're violent. The rich are taking advantage of those who, the rich and the powerful are taking advantage of those who don't have any voice. Piece of evidence number four, you're lying. You're deceitful. Evidence number six, you're idolatrous. You're following the ways of Omri and Ahab, who are two of the worst kings in Israel's history. It actually describes in 1 Kings 16 that Omri, it's like every time there's a new king, it's like, and Omri took evil to the next level. And then Ahab thought that Omri's evil was pretty weak, and so he took it to the next level. They're one-upping each other on how wicked they are. But what's important to me to note about this is that God, when he brings a case, he compares it to one thing. He compares it to his law, which is a revelation of himself. That is so important for us to hear today, and here's why. Because you and I have a tendency to push against, we, we don't want to compare ourselves to God, so we choose to compare ourselves to each other. Well, at least I'm not like her. At least I don't do what he does. We'd rather not compare ourselves to the standard of perfection, which actually shines a light on our flaws, on our sin, on our failures. We just want to feel better about ourselves than the next person. Notice how you rarely compare yourself to someone. If you're trying to think about how fit you are or how attractive you are, you usually don't compare yourself to someone who makes you look better. If you're trying to feel good about yourself, you pick somebody who maybe isn't quite as good looking as you are. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Because <laughs> you just want to feel good about yourself. Or if we do compare ourselves up, we just tuck our tail between our legs and sulk off because we know we don't measure up. But that's still to another person. Then there's the temptation that we have to not compare ourselves to God's law, but to take God's law and soften it a bit. Soften it just enough so that we feel like we're doing a little bit better than maybe we really are. But when God brings a case against his people, he doesn't bring it against the other nations. He doesn't say, compare yourself. Compare yourself to one another. He says, no, 
You have violated the covenant that you made with me. Your life is contrary to mine. And here's what's interesting about this. While our cultures are very different, I'm not sure how many of you are messing around with your ephah, like your weights and things like that, right? Culturally, the expression of this is very different between Israel's culture 2,700 years ago and ours today, but our hearts are the same, right? The rest of Scripture goes on to say that this isn't just an Israelite problem, this is a human problem. And so it's tax season, and there's a temptation to not quite report everything. Why? Because it'll cost me a little more. I, I, integrity can be sacrificed for the sake of a better life for me. Or maybe you're about to get a raise because inflation's spiked through the roof, and so maybe your, your employer is going to give a, a, a little bit of a bump for your salary. But rather than having a heart for those who are in need, you increase your lifestyle based on that, taking more of that raise for yourself and not concerning yourself with others. You see the same heart? Maybe, maybe you don't actually act out in violence in the same way, but you sure want to. You should hear you talk about that guy in the car over there next to you. Maybe you're, maybe you're not bold enough to go and, and attack someone violently with your words, but it happens a whole lot behind their back. Or it happens behind a screen of a keyboard to someone you don't know when you're blasting them on social media. Do you see, do you see how this heart is the same way? This heart that says, I am the most important thing in the universe. And again, God says, you're a terrible God. There is no such thing as a small sin. There is no such thing as not a big deal. There really is no such thing as a little white lie. One of my favorite pieces of Scripture comes in Romans chapter 1, where God is listing this, this series of what we would call egregious sins, God-haters, murderers, wicked, all these things. And then it says, and they disobeyed their parents, all in the same sentence. What? Disobeying your parents on par with murder? What? Why? There is no such thing as a small sin to God. God takes our sin very seriously. God says, I'm going to frustrate your evil selfishness. It's never going to satisfy you. Chapter 6, verse 13 to 15, here is the result of when we choose to be our own gods, when we choose the, the path of the fool, when we live a life of disobedience to God's law, which is good and beautiful. Verse 13 to 15 says this, it says, therefore, God says, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up but save nothing because what you save I will give to the sword. You will plant but not harvest. You will press olives but not use the oil. You will crush grapes but not drink the wine. End part of verse 16. Therefore I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision or mocking and you will bear the scorn of the nations. The result of our disobedience, the result of sin, the result of rejecting God as God and living as if we are God, as if we are the center of the universe, will always leave you empty. Sin will always overpromise and underdeliver. There's no way around it. You know it from your own life. 
Maybe this description actually summarizes a lot of your life. You feel like you're working so hard and just getting nowhere. No satisfaction, no pleasure, no joy. God says, when you say no thank you to me, I will give you over to ruin. Again, Romans chapter 1 describes this as God's wrath. God's wrath is God saying, you want to be God? You want to be the king of your life? Have at it. Have it. I'll step back and give you over to your desires. And it will be like this every time. It will be empty with no life. You will feel like you're getting somewhere and it's empty inside. This is where we have to pause and step back and go back to verse 9 and say, remember why God is giving this judgment. He's rendering this verdict to his people. To fear the Lord is wisdom. To heed the rod of the one who appointed it. This call to repentance. To be wise. Choose wisdom, Israel. The problem is what happens when you present wisdom to a fool? They don't take it. They're foolish. It's like throwing pearls before a pig. They have no value to them. Try and eat them. So the question is, does Israel ever take up God's invitation to repent? And if you know the biblical story, the answer has been from the very beginning, no, 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 no. The whole way. The invitation to repent, the confrontation that God has brought from prophet after prophet after prophet, repent, this is not going to turn out well for you. I'm displaying my patience to you. My patience is designed, my kindness is designed to lead you to repentance. And you continue to refuse. And we go back to the conundrum that it feels like God put himself in. They've continued to reject. And God cannot leave the guilty unpunished. So how in the world will God show mercy and justice without compromising either? And what's really interesting is there's another prophet that's right alongside Micah. They, they're living and speaking at the same time, and his name is Isaiah. And Isaiah looks at this exact same scenario the exact same way, except Isaiah reveals another little secret. And it's this secret that there's this person, there's this man, there's this person who will suffer for the sins of the nation. We don't know who this person is at this point. All we know is things like this, that he, Isaiah 53, that he was despised and we didn't care about him. But that he took up our pain and he bore our suffering, but we considered him to be the one who was punished by God stricken by him and afflicted. And that this man is going to be pierced, not for his own transgressions, but for our transgressions. And that he's crushed, not for his own iniquities, but for our iniquities. And the punishment that's going to bring us peace is on him. But that by his wounds, we're healed. Because every single one of us, like sheep, have wandered off. We've decided to go our own way. But God has laid on him the iniquity of every one of us. 
and what the mystery that is revealed when Jesus comes to earth is that this man is not just merely man, but this is God himself. That you want to know how in the world can justice be served and mercy shown? Look no further than the cross of Christ. Because on the, Christ, on the cross, Christ didn't just bear our sins, but Corinthians tells us that he became sin. That he was the one who bore and took on himself all of the sufferings, all of the sin, so that when Jesus cries out, it is finished. The gavel is slammed. Justice is served. Your sin has been paid for. But mercy has been shown because you aren't the one paying for it. God absorbs that in himself. I don't know how you eat ice cream at your house. Here's how I eat ice cream. Maybe makes my wife a little bit disgusted with me, but she's stuck now. Um, when I finish, like, I'm that annoying guy that's, like, taking the bowl and, like, scraping my spoon. You know, you got to get every drop of that, right? Every single drop of it. And then I, if, if you're at my house, I won't do this, but if I'm by myself, you know what I'm going to do, right? You know I'm licking that bowl because it's too good. Here's the thing. When Jesus calls out, it is finished, he takes the bowl of God's wrath and he doesn't just scrape the sides so there's a little bit left. He gets in there and he licks every bit of that wrath up for you. The weight, the heaviness that God brings against sin is no joke and he doesn't soften a lick with it. Didn't mean that pun, by the way. He doesn't soften a bit with it. He gets in there and Jesus licks every bit of that wrath for you. Every bit of judgment that is deserved by you as the one who committed the sin. The one who said, no thank you to God, I'd rather be the center of my own universe. And the judgment, the emptiness, the hollowness, the lack of life, the death, the ruin that is deserved you, Jesus didn't leave a drop for you. He licked every bit of that bowl of judgment up. Here's why that's important. Friends, what would it be like for us to have the same view of sin as God? Not to make light of our sin, not to try to compare our sin to someone else's sin, but to look square in the eyes of God and say, God, I have failed you. My sin is disgraceful. I have rejected you, the only source of life. But I look at Jesus who took every drop of wrath from me, which means, God, you are not angry with me. You are not upset with me. There is no wrath left. There is no ruin that can come against you if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. If by faith you are trusting in him and his spirit is in you, there is no wrath for you. There is no condemnation. What if we believe that, friends? What if we actually believed that we can be serious about sin and throw the shame out the window? Do you know what that would start to look like? That would start to look like an honesty with our shortcomings. Not trying to trick ourselves, not trying to trick each other by putting on a facade, by covering up our lives, by acting like you know what, I got this all together. Let me present how polished of a life I've got. 
We become honest about our sins, which means that when we're honest about our sins before God, the one who sees it all and still says, I love you, I call you mine, I have paid for it, it is forgiven, it is finished. Confession comes. There's freedom. The other day when it was nice out, not like yesterday, by the way, what happened Friday to Saturday? I don't know. I'm moving. You can come with me if you want. I went walking through the neighborhood over here on Friday when it was beautiful. And as I was walking after reading and studying this passage, I just kept hearing the Lord's voice going, you're free. You're free. You're free. It was like two or three minutes. That's all I heard. And I kept going, I'm free? I'm free? For real? I don't have to live in shame? I don't live as if I have God's frown, but I have his smile? Are you serious? And what I knew to be true and what I believe in my heart sunk a little bit more. Which means I'm, I'm free to confess because it actually doesn't matter what you think about me. I'm free to repent, to turn from my sin because, ew, that's gross. That leaves emptiness and death, but I can turn towards life. And I have hope because I don't know what it is that you're facing in your world. I don't know what it is that just like Israel feels like another cycle, another cycle, another cycle, another listen, 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 you keep failing. I don't know what that is for you. I don't know if it's a sexual addiction. I don't know if it's an envy. I don't know if it's this lack of self-control, this impatience with your family. I don't know what it is for you. But here's what I do know. It doesn't win. You have already been forgiven. You are free. Oh, that we would believe that. That we would believe that deep in the core of who we are. So that even if your own heart condemns you, 1 John 3 says, God is greater. The good news is, is none of you are the judge for me. The really good news, I'm not the judge for me. The really good news is God is. And he has already said, I take sin so seriously that it must be paid. And my love, my commitment to you is so strong that I will not destroy you. I'll absorb it in myself. Praise God. Praise God. Friends, you are free. For real. Father, what is this news? Lord, we walk around with such heavy hearts, filled with shame, because we know we don't measure up. When we read the seriousness of sin, we either try to disregard it, which is just lying to ourselves, or it crushes us. The reality is, is that you were pleased to give that to your son, to take that in yourself, to absorb your own judgment against sin so that we might be spared. Father, may we not be people who brush sin away, but can look at it square in the eyes, and as we look at that, we look to the cross, are reminded of your love for us. And Lord, would that do something to us? Would you, by your Spirit, take that good news, that life-changing good news that we are free, and change us? Make us like you. Give us a hatred for our sin, and a fear, a right, all reverential, leading to obedience response to you. 
We love you more than our words can say. We pray that you, Christ, would be magnified here today, that you would be lifted up because you were crucified. You were buried and you were raised to life so that we can be forgiven. And he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. May we live into that freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.